0: This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC, points through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, Planning Committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only physician's own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patient's specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by The Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solove Research Institute. Addiction, stigma, and person first language. That's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solove Research Institute. And now, our medical editor and moderator, Dr. Jingjing Mao.
1: Psychoactive substances like nicotine, cocaine, opium, and cannabis have been used for millennia. Priests or shamans used substances in religious ceremonies to induce trances since over 4,000 years ago. Opium has been cultivated and used medicinally since at least the third millennium BC. And alcohol, nicotine and caffeine have been widely used recreationally since even before that. Despite widespread use of substances, it wasn't until the 18th century that addiction to substances was first considered a medical condition. Prior to that time, substance use was primarily considered a matter of free will. Certain people could choose to drink more or use more substance for whatever reason. In the 18th century, we started to see things like opium addiction causing widespread problems in China, finally leading to the Chinese government passing laws to limit its use and distribution. In Europe and America, alcoholism was becoming recognized as a compulsion beyond the control of the drinker. Today. The leading cause of injury related death in the United States is from overdose, with the most common substance being opioids. The preliminary data from the CDC released in May of 2023 estimates that nearly 110,000 overdose deaths occurred in 2022. In addition to these deaths, there have been numerous non fatal overdoses, which can have considerable toll emotionally, physically, and financially. In December of 2022, the Drug Enforcement Agency, or DEA, issued a new one-time requirement for prescribers to complete eight hours of training on the treatment and management of patients with opioid or other substance use disorders. Here at Ohio State University, we are very fortunate to have several addiction experts to share their extensive knowledge on the subject. I have two of them here with me today to discuss the important topic of addiction, stigma, and person-first language. Dr. Julie Teeter is an associate professor of psychiatry, specializing in addiction medicine. She also started and runs the first addiction medicine fellowship in Ohio and serves as the medical director of Talbot Hall, Ohio State University's drug and alcohol treatment center. And I also have here Dr. Orman Trent Hall, who is an assistant professor of psychiatry, trained in PM&R and specializing in addiction medicine. Trent has served as the clinical lead for inpatient addiction medicine consult services at Ohio State University East Hospital, and is a clinician researcher studying the relationship between chronic pain and addiction, addiction stigma, and epidemiology of overdose. Julie, Trent, welcome to the program. Thanks for having us.
2: Thank you. Great to be with you.
1: All right, well, I'm really excited to hear more about um, your talk today, but I'm Curious, you know, with the fellowship being so new and with addiction medicine specialty being so new, how did you get into it, Julie?
3: Sure. Um, so actually, OSU has had a drug and alcohol treatment center in Talbot Hall, located at East Hospital. Talbot was actually founded in 1974, so has been a part of OSU um, since OSU uh, acquired OSU East in 1999. So. Um, actually, when I finished residency, there was a vacancy and my chair asked me to go over and and help at Talbot. And that was over a decade ago. OK, well, <laughs> wonderful. And, and you've expanded
1: it a lot since yes, then. Very different. Um, and Trent, how did you get into studying addiction stigma?
2: So, as you know, was one of Dr. Teeter's first fellows in the uh, Ohio State University Addiction Medicine program and it quickly became apparent that our patients were not just suffering from this devastating medical illness, but they were also experiencing stigma in their communities and sometimes even in the hospital.
1: Okay, that's sad to hear, but I'm sure um, you guys have solutions for us. Well, thank you so much um, for our audience. Before we dive into the program, if you haven't already, please check out our website at go.osu.edu MedNet21. You can find all 120 of our webcasts there, along with the slides and instructions to get your CME credit and ABIM MOC points. You can also listen to our programs by podcast. Search for MedNet21 CME on your podcast app. If you have any questions about any of our programs, please send those to us using the Ask a Question feature on the bottom of the webcast. Now let's get
3: started. Julie. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Um, we're really excited to be here talking to you guys about addiction, stigma, and person-first language. Uh, as noted before, here are our disclosures. Um, So in starting, I'm going to talk a little bit about the basic neurobiology of addiction uh, and talk about how this neurobiology explains some of the behaviors we might see, as well as uh, be able to check some personal biases about patients with addiction and substance use disorders. Then I will hand off to Dr. Hall to talk about more specifically addiction stigma, and give examples of person-first language as a way for all of us to reduce the harmful impact of addiction stigma on patient care. So brief outline for today. Um, first we're going to talk a little bit about addiction and uh, the neurobiology of addiction. So. This is the definition of addiction from the American Society of Addiction Medicine, or ASAM, which is one of our national organizations. Um, Addiction is a treatable chronic medical disease that involves brain circuits, genetics, and environment. Um, The hallmark of addiction is really continued use despite consequences. Uh, I think that's one of the most difficult things to understand about addiction is that it often seems like patients continue patterns of behavior that are against their stated wishes or against their best interest. And some of what we'll talk about in the neurobiology helps to explain this. One thing I would like to point out is that there's nothing in this definition of addiction that talks about frequency or quantity it's really about compulsive use despite consequences that has a neurobiologic basis. Um, One thing that is not commonly understood is that the prevention efforts and treatment approaches for addiction are generally as successful as those for other chronic diseases. So um, when viewed in a chronic disease model it's much easier to see treatment successes, for example, um, and you know see re-entering treatment actually as, as a success of getting back on the right track, um, as opposed to a failure of some sort. Um, so, uh, regarding national statistics, it's hard, I, I can't give any talk about addiction without talking about how devastating the national statistics have been um, the first time that we passed the 100,000 year or hundred thousand deaths per year mark um, started essentially with the COVID-19 pandemic. So, um, and for the last two years since then, we have had over 100,000 opioid overdose deaths. That was a dramatic increase um, starting in 2020 to 2021 from the previous year, almost a 30% increase. Uh, As was mentioned earlier, actually, almost all of those, or a very large percentage, 75% or more, have been opioid related. Um, And these are just accidental overdoses we're talking about. Um, It has, you know, opioid overdose death and overdose death has exceeded deaths due to gun violence and uh, many other um, devastating illnesses and accidents, um, and actually has led to a decrease in our. National life expectancy. Um, Here in Ohio, um, we unfortunately have had uh, some of the highest rates of drug overdoses. And one thing that I like to point out is um, this is even, you know, compared by state population. So we are the seventh largest state, but we have the third most overdoses in the country. Um, and more overdoses than states that are larger than us, like New York and Texas. Um, In 2020, we had over 5,000 deaths, that's 14 deaths per day, the large majority being related to fentanyl. Um, And, you know, the beginning of the pandemic really started setting off our most deadly months ever. Uh, May 2020 we had over 500 overdoses in our state. This is an article um, by our own Dr. Hall here which uh, talks about uh, years of life lost from the opioid epidemic. You'll see that, so the years of this study were actually 2009 to 2018 um, which you know I will point out was even before things got as bad as they did in the early pandemic. Um, Years of life loss is a statistic that tries to put in context really the age at which um, patients with substance use disorders are dying of overdose and really um, you know highlights the cost not only to patients and families, but also society as a whole. So. In the 10 years of this study, there were over 1 million years of life lost from overdose just in the state of Ohio. Um, 2017 had been a um, incredibly devastating year um, and just in that year lowered the life expectancy in Ohio by over one year. Um, The uh, it's the third leading cause of years of life lost in Ohio behind um, malignant neoplasms and heart disease, so um, you know thinking as a society as far as how much we invest in um, those other diseases um, and the treatment cure and prevention um, you know this helps put that in context, and uh you know helps me to argue that we should be doing the same to prevent, treat, and recover from substance use disorders. Um, More recently, um, this is another article of ours looking particularly at um, unintentional drug overdose mortality just in adolescents and young people. Um, This is, again, particularly devastating, um, given that the age at which people are suffering both morbidity and mortality from um, substance use disorders, uh, you know, even prior to the age of 18. All right, so we're going to transition to talk a little bit about the uh, neurobiology of addiction and why we see some of the behaviors we see. Um, so if you think back to high school biology and Charles Darwin and Survival of the Fittest, you'll remember that um, for our species to survive for as long as it has, um, two things need to happen. Number one, the individual needs to live to be old enough to um, then reproduce and create the next generation. So things like food, water, shelter help the individual to survive and things like reproduction and caring for our young help the species to survive. Uh, in order to motivate this behavior, your brain, over millennia, um, developed a reward system for this behavior. And so when you do things you're supposed to do, like take care of kids and uh, you know, provide food, water, and shelter, um, your brain actually gives you little rewards uh, little bursts of dopamine, and your brain learns that those are things that it should keep doing. When someone has a substance use disorder and start, use, starts using substances, um, your brain really hijacks that reward system and gives large floods of dopamine, um, which far outweigh anything that the natural reward system is giving and so the brain starts preferentially paying attention to whatever can give um, these big floods of dopamine. Over time, um, that helps to explain some of the behaviors we see, this compulsive seeking as well as being triggered by anything related to the substance use, even thoughts, feelings, smells, sights, etc. So, uh, in the beginning, Substances give large floods of dopamine, and that originally gives a sense of euphoria. Um, However, uh, over time, it moves less from euphoria and more to preventing withdrawal. Um, These substances uh, give very immediate, prolonged, and very intense um, euphoria and is much more than our natural reward system. And as use is repeated, your brain circuitry becomes accustomed to that and starts to expect that. Um, Over time, because your brain is being flooded with dopamine with each use, um, your brain takes down some of its dopamine receptors, or down-regulates those receptors. And so then, when someone's not using, they have much less ability to experience pleasure, for example. The ones that are, um, are still there really uh, produce a craving for the substance that is unlike anything the brain has ever seen before. Um, overall, patients move from uh, initially using for the euphoria and then towards moving just to feel normal or get back to where they used to be. Um, So, um, the the converse is, well, not everyone who uses a substance ends up developing a substance use disorder, Um, and why is that? Uh, Typically it's broken into biologic factors, environmental factors, and individual factors. Biologic factors, or our genetic contribution, is about half of the risk. Depending on the substance, it's between 40 and 60 percent. So roughly half of someone's risk of developing a substance use disorder is genetically mediated. The other half is between environmental factors and individual factors. So environmental factors include things like high drug availability, um, you know, growing up with poverty, crime. Uh, environments that normalize drug and alcohol use, etc. On the individual factors, those are things that happen in the home or to the person. So, um, you know, school and community, uh, early onset of substance use, we know definitely impacts someone's uh, likelihood of developing a substance use disorder. The one thing I really like to point out is the connection between adverse childhood experiences or trauma in the development of a substance use disorder. We know that adverse childhood experiences, including physical abuse, neglect, but also having an unstable home environment, uh, really impacts future likelihood of developing a substance use disorder, um, as well as other mental health conditions and physical health conditions. So some um, protective factors include you know, in some ways the opposite of, um, you know, the things we just talked about for risk factors. So having healthy peer and community attachment, having involved parents, um, having reduced availability of substances, uh, delaying the onset of first use is a um, huge uh, protective factor. So we know that um, the brain, particularly your frontal lobe, prefrontal cortex is not fully formed until about the age of 25. Many patients who develop a substance use disorder initiate use much earlier than that in the ages of like 12 to 18 and that dramatically increases the risk of developing a substance use disorder. I also like to point out connectedness to adults outside of the family. So there have been studies showing that having a non-parent adult who the you know child or adolescent can trust um, can be uh, very protective against developing a substance use disorder. So this is where you know coaches, teachers, um, you know extended family, uh, members of the faith community can really um, help step in and be a, a positive influence in a child's life. Um, so all of this um, comes together to give a, a risk for an individual person. Um, other things such as how the substance is used, the actual substance that's used, and again age of first use also play a role in the likelihood as far as um, developing a substance use disorder. So um, over time uh, the brain downregulates dopamine, There's less euphoria associated with use, and the only thing that is giving enough signal in the brain is the substance. Um, The normal reinforcers just end up being like noise in the background. The only thing that's giving the big peaks of dopamine is the substance, and that's the only thing that becomes salient to the brain. Um, And so as, as this develops, it becomes more difficult for patients to attend to those other normal reinforcers and helps explain some of the behavior difference we see between maybe what they state they want to do and action. Um, Alright, so at this point I will tag off to Dr. Hall to talk about um, addiction stigma.
2: Thank you Dr. Teeter. So up to this point in the presentation, we've talked about the science of addiction. We've talked about how this is a complex complex biopsychosocial health condition that involves our life experiences and our genetics and our environment. And this part of the talk is I'm very grateful to say, actually much easier to present than what Dr. Teeter gave us already. So, before we start this section of the talk, I'd like for everyone watching today to imagine that they're about to meet someone for the very first time. And just before you meet that person, somebody else tells you that they're a bad person and that there's a chance that they might try to manipulate you. When you meet that person, how is that going to impact? how you think about them, how you talk to them, how you treat them. And that's what this part of the conversation is about. It's about how our words, how we communicate with each other, can influence our thinking, can shut down our science brain, can influence our clinical decision making. And really, I hope this part of the talk will leave you with a hopeful message, because there are things that we can do together to improve patient care to increase engagement and adherence to treatment and to empower our patients to take the steps that they need to change their lives so some of you might be wondering what is stigma exactly and although that question sounds simple at first I like to think of stigma as being a three-part process the first part is a label and as we know labels can be associated with stereotypes and some stereotypes are positive others are negative in the case of addiction stigma the stereotype elicits a negative response and the reason why it's practical and useful to think of stigma as being a three-part process is that each one of these steps in the stigma process is an opportunity for each of us to intervene for example we can prevent the label from being applied in the first place. We can use the power of our position as as clinicians to change how people think about the stereotype that's associated with this label. We can also be there for our patients. If we've gone completely through this cycle, from label to stereotype to negative response, we can help support them and help clean up the mess that's been made. again i would really like it for our viewers today to just take a moment and consider this question can you think of any stigmatized health conditions common responses to this question when we give this talk in person include diabetes sexually transmitted infections chronic pain mental health conditions I'm sure many of you in the audience thought of these and maybe even some others. The truth is is that addiction is not unlike many other health conditions and being stigmatized. In fact there are very many health conditions that carry a heavy stigma and that stigma can interfere with the care of those conditions as is the case with addiction. Now. Here's a follow-up question I'd like for you to consider. Are you aware of any health conditions that have become less stigmatized over time? So common responses that Dr. Teeter and I hear when we give this talk in person include cancer and HIV. So the reason why we like to have our audience take time and think about this question in particular is what we have seen in, in the history of cancer and HIV research and treatment. So I th- I'm sure most of our viewers today likely don't remember a time when cancer was a heavily stigmatized health condition. Certainly still carries stigma and there are important advocacy efforts like the pink ribbon campaign that are, are actively trying to help influence public perceptions of this health condition. But in the time of my grandparents and great-grandparents, if someone in the family had cancer, you didn't tell the neighbors about it. In fact, cancer was often a secret inside the family. And this was a real problem, especially for heritable cancers. How are you supposed to know that you're at risk for breast cancer if you don't know that that's what took the life of your mother or your aunt or your grandmother? And with HIV-AIDS, again, continues to carry a heavy stigma. But if we think about when HIV-AIDS first entered our public consciousness, this was a time when healthcare workers were openly refusing to touch their patients. And in fact, there were actually debates in the upper echelons of our scientific community about whether we should even be looking for a cure. That's stigma. And so what we have seen, is that as the stigma towards these health conditions has improved we have actually seen coinciding with that an increase in the funds available for research and development of new treatments we have seen an increase in access and quality of care and we are hoping that together by taking the simple steps we talk about today each of us can push addiction along a similar trajectory So now we'll transition to talking about how stigma can be an important barrier to care. So Dr. Teeter and I, in addition to our our clinical and educational work, we also do stigma research. And we're particularly interested in internalized stigma or self-stigma. So it is possible for people with addiction to, you know, as they're encountering stigma in the community setting start to incorporate that into their self-understanding and that can impact them in a variety of negative ways. Um, So a, a large study that we're doing at OSU asks some of these questions of our participants and this is preliminary data. So what we see here are a series of questions that we've asked participants and then along the x-axis there we see affirmation so that's um, the number of participants who have agreed or strongly agreed to each of these statements so just quickly reviewing these in the past i have left the hospital against medical advice because healthcare workers have disrespected me or treated me poorly due to my opioid use disorder 51 out of 88 participants told us that and that's pretty remarkable when you think about the fact that Some of our participants have never been hospitalized. In the past, I have felt I could not speak openly and honestly with healthcare workers about my opioid use disorder because I was worried I might be disrespected or treated poorly. 61 out of 88 participants agreed or strongly agreed. And one common stigmatizing thing that I hear about my patients, I hear sometimes people tell me, oh, they're manipulative. They're just going to tell you what you want to hear. Well, you know, when we're talking to our patients, we, we create incentive structures, right, where um, there's a power differential between us. And this question shows us that for many of our participants, the majority of our participants, fear of stigma is a reason why some of your patients might be reluctant to tell you clinically accurate, helpful information. I've avoided or delayed getting health care or addiction treatment because I was worried I might be disrespected or treated poorly due to my opioid use disorder. 57 out of 88 participants in this preliminary analysis agreed or strongly agreed that they had avoided care because of stigma. And we know that, you know, the most recent numbers from SAMHSA tell us that only 11% of people with opioid use disorder in the United States received medication treatment in 2020. So if there is something that we as healthcare providers can do to improve that access, it's as easy as changing how we think and speak about our patients. I have been disrespected or treated poorly while trying to get medical treatment because of my opioid use disorder. 60 out of 88 participants so it it shows us that as healthcare providers who are invested in doing no harm really questioning how we're thinking and communicating about our patients is is consistent with our values so substance use stigma you know at this point in the talk no surprise to any of our viewers that alcohol and substance use disorders are Highly stigmatized diseases. Negative stereotypes about individuals with these health conditions are common not just among healthcare workers but also in the general public. And stigma can be internalized by individuals who use alcohol and other substances, presenting a barrier to treatment. So, again, let's, let's pause and really ponder this question. What percentage of people living with opioid use disorder received medication in 2020? So this is sort of a review question. We Have heard this answer. And just in review, the answer is only 11% of the 2.5 million Americans with opioid use disorder received any medication treatment in 2020. So you might be questioning at this point in the talk, how do we know that stigma is a barrier to care? And the answer to that is, is that over the past two to three decades, there has been an increasingly um, large signal in, in, in our, our data. So we're, we're seeing a growing body of literature that supports stigma as a barrier to care. And we have found that Stigma is an important reason many people with substance use disorders avoid or delay seeking treatment. Patients are commonly concerned that they may be mistreated, condescended, or that they'll be thought less of if they seek help for alcohol or substance use. And we know that even though the vast majority of our patients are are untreated, those who do seek treatment, their retention and adherence in that treatment is negatively impacted when they experience stigma during care. And then we know, too, from this research that stigma from treatment providers is harmful to the therapeutic alliance that we all value. I like to say it's like pouring acid on the bonds that we need to provide effective care for this health condition. So we've talked a little bit about the research that Dr. Teeter and I do. But let's talk about some important research in this addiction stigma space. So there was an important systematic review titled stigma among health professionals towards patients with substance use disorders and its consequences for Healthcare delivery. This was written by uh, Van Bokel and um, uh, other researchers who are a part of this effort and published in the journal Drug and Alcohol Dependence. This is a very important journal in the addiction field. It's actually associated with um, NIH's NIDA National Institute of Drug Abuse. Um, but this was a systematic review. They included 28 studies from 2000 to 2011, and there were some pretty disturbing findings from this systematic review. So, first, health professionals generally had a negative attitude toward patients with substance use disorders. Second, healthcare professionals perceived violence, manipulation, and poor motivation as impeding factors in the healthcare delivery for these patients. And then another key finding was health professionals also lacked adequate education, training, and support structures in working with this patient group. Finally, and perhaps the worst finding of all, is that negative attitudes of health professionals diminished patients' feelings of empowerment and subsequent treatment outcomes. I like to say our patients are the ones who need to make the change, right? They're the ones who are going to have to walk through this life and what they really need more than anything else that we can provide them is a feeling of empowerment and the fact that the way that we think and communicate about our patients can rob them of the most important tool in their recovery is something that we should all pause to consider. So another very important seminal paper in addiction stigma research was published by Kelly et al in 2010. Kelly actually had two very important papers in 2010 and that's why it's labeled 2010A. So this title the title of this paper was Does our choice of substance related terms influence perceptions of treatment need? An empirical investigation with two commonly used terms. And so Kelly uh, tested whether referring to an individual as a substance abuser versus having a substance use disorder impacted perceptions of treatment need, punishment, whether the person was thought of as being threatening, um, whether participants uh, thought about the, the patient in the terms that Dr. Teeter has taught us about today, about the science of addiction, or whether they assumed that this health condition was related to some sort of a character flaw. And then finally, self-regulation—whether or not the patients should just be able to take care of this on their own without um, any kind of consideration from us. This initial study was conducted at Massachusetts General Hospital. Uh, the participants in the study were all uh, healthcare workers or trainees at Massachusetts General Hospital. And this is the question stem that they saw in the survey. So you can see these are identical stems. The only difference is whether Mr. Williams was described as a substance abuser or whether he was described as having a substance use disorder. And just for, for reference, um, substance abuser is our, our stigmatizing phrase, and then uh, has a substance use disorder is our, our less stigmatizing, clinically accurate uh, phrasing. So. Kelly found that simply substituting these phrases led to significant differences in how participants saw patients with substance use disorders. And so this word cloud here expresses some of the responses to the survey, um, whether patients were considered to be, uh, Mr. Williams was considered to be a violent threat or whether uh, participants blamed him for his problem versus thinking about his problem in the scientific terms that we reviewed with Dr. Teeter whether or not the patient required treatment or deserved punishment. And what was shown by this research is that when Mr. Williams was described as a substance abuser, the participants at one of the best hospitals in the world, it it shut down their science brain. Even though these are some of the smartest people in healthcare, hearing Mr. Williams described as a substance abuser uh, led to a narrowing of their their vision when seeing Mr. Williams and it led them to uh, believe that he didn't deserve treatment, that he should be punished, that he was a bad person and they forgot about the science of addiction and blaming him for his health condition. When the same group of people were exposed to Mr. Williams being described as having a substance use disorder, they were much more likely to acknowledge that uh, life experiences environment things like that you know the there was a scientific reason related to this health condition that he was a, a, a human being who needed treatment and um, so the uh, reception that this article received uh, you know people reacted to the study like okay this is are very compelling findings but not everybody that you asked this survey to uh, were actually professionals in the behavioral health space. You know, there, there were clinicians and some trainees at an incredible hospital. What would happen if you had given in this survey instead to people who had a lot of clinical experience in treating patients with addiction? And so Kelly said, I'll take that bet. And they went to um, this behavioral health uh, conference and provided the same survey to participants who had been trained in um, behavioral health. And they were able to fully replicate their findings in this large sample at two mental health conferences. Even among highly trained mental health professionals, exposure to these two commonly used terms evoked systematically different judgments. The commonly used phrase substance abuser term perpetuated stigmatizing attitudes. So moving on, um, our understanding of what addiction, or excuse me, what language is considered to be stigmatizing is still evolving. So uh, luckily we have organizations like the American Society of Addiction Medicine and others who continually review the growing body of literature around addiction stigma and provide updated lists of terminology to avoid and, and what to substitute them with. So these are examples of stigmatizing language. I think there are probably words on this slide that um, are are sort of um, more self-explanatory or more obviously stigmatizing than others. Um, There may be others, though, that you're used to hearing. So uh, those of you who have been around long enough to remember DSM-IV. you know, we, we used words like abuse, and dependence, and there are still many organizations in the addiction space that have these words in their names. Um, but this is something that we're moving away from. So uh, changing the conversation around addiction, really trying to substitute phrases like clean with remission or recovery, drug abuse with substance use. We use misuse when we're talking about, um, like, uh, medications. You know, you wouldn't say, like, someone misuses heroin, but you could say, like, someone maybe misusing oxycodone, if that makes sense. Um, And uh, use disorder, right, instead of uh, uh, having a drug abuse problem or something like that. Of um, opioid substitution or replacement, we're moving towards the phrase medi- uh, medications for opioid use disorder. Dr. Teeter will discuss that. Clean urine, so we would like to say negative urine drug screen, or um, you know that the uh, there were no unexpected findings in the urine, things like that. Dirty urine would be uh, saying positive, and then. So person first language, this is, refers to clinically accurate alternative to stigmatizing language. It's recommended for use in referring to anyone with a chronic health condition or disability. And it is what it sounds like. So it's uh, putting the person first, right? Person with diabetes, person with tetraplegia, person with bipolar disorder. You, know, you could just as easily say, though, um, you know, man, woman, child, et cetera, uh, descriptors of a person preceding the health condition um, this is another table with some uh, examples and substitutions so another audience question why do you think it might be important to use person-first language and I also wonder what you might think about this question too can you think of some scenarios in your practice where the choice of words might impact care so we've kind of discussed the the answers to those you know it's possible for uh, our, our words to influence perceptions of our patients among other healthcare workers and so that's why it's important to consistently use person-first, clinically accurate, non-stigmatizing language in our handoffs, our sign-outs, our private conversations with other healthcare workers, in our documentation, and our interactions with their, uh, our patients and their families, and certainly our interactions with the public. We each, uh, you know, sometimes we forget. Like we, we actually are fairly influential in in um, how the public perceives health conditions you know broadly, and, and so we're able to push things in the right direction with addiction stigma. And at this point, I'll transition back to Dr. Teeter.
3: Thank you so much, Dr. Hall. All right, so first, um, we're going to talk a little bit about other uh, other types of stigma or stigma more broadly in mental health. So as Dr. Hall mentioned, addiction is not the only um, stigmatized health condition. Um, Other mental health conditions or psychiatric disorders um, do carry significant stigma as well. Um, So some examples of instead of saying mental illness, describing as a mental health condition is the uh, preferred term, um, Another example of person-first language here is instead of describing someone as a schizophrenic, using person with schizophrenia to again really put the person first and separate them um, from their condition. Um, As far as describing suicide attempts, um, instead of saying successful or unsuccessful suicide or suicide attempt, Um, describing as died by suicide or survived a suicide attempt would be the preferred um, version. Um, Threatened suicide or is suicidal, um, a preferred version to that would be disclosed or discussed suicidal thoughts, um, considering suicide, is experiencing suicidal thoughts or ideation. Uh, And then instead of describing it as a mental institution or psych ward, uh, using the terms behavioral health facility or inpatient psychiatric unit. Um, Particularly in addiction care, medications for opioid use disorder can be a highly stigmatized um, uh, form of treatment. Um, This slide really talks about some of the myths surrounding particularly suboxone or buprenorphine treatment, um, which is an FDA approved uh, treatment for medications, er, for opioid use disorder. Um, tre- medication treatment is one of the strongest um, things we have in regards to preventing morbidity and mortality. So. Um, As Dr. Hall mentioned earlier, it's something that the majority of our patients do not have access to, so expanding access is incredibly important. In order to do that, dispelling stigma is important. So um, one idea that you may hear in healthcare spaces, but also from patients, is, well, taking buprenorphine is just replacing one addiction for another. And what I like to point out is that Um, addiction is compulsively taking a substance despite consequences um, or despite the harm. Medications um, does not have that same compulsivity um, and doesn't have the same kinds of consequences. So taking a medication for a chronic condition is similar to uh, taking insulin for diabetes, for example. Um, I also like to point out that we never in healthcare would we say, "Okay, you can be on insulin for one year, and after that time, you have to have made enough lifestyle modifications where you don't need insulin anymore, um, and you know, or otherwise you can't get treatment here." So I would, you know, recommend a similar, um, you know, attitude towards medications for opioid use disorder. They should be given as long as the patient is continuing to benefit Um, buprenorphine is actually a really uh, interesting molecule as a partial agonist and while it can have some analgesic properties, um, it doesn't necessarily go along with the euphoria that can be experienced with other opioids. As far as the myth that buprenorphine is too time-consuming to initiate or that the medication is dangerous, it's actually much safer than um, many things that we do uh, quite routinely, like insulin or Coumadin, for example, right? So those require a lot more monitoring um, than something like buprenorphine. Buprenorphine has become more difficult to start in the age of fentanyl and fentanyl overdose. Um, But once started, it's actually um, very straightforward. And the large majority of patients do very well on a relatively narrow dose range. Um, Another myth is that detox alone is effective and we know that that's not the case. So um, there's high rates of return to use following detox alone. And so really, a chronic treatment for a chronic problem um, is the recommendation. And then early on, there was this idea that uh, if we just reduce our prescribing, that that will fix the problem. Um, We know that over the last decade, our prescribing patterns have declined dramatically, um, but as we discussed earlier, the death rate has increased. That is namely, related to uh, fentanyl in our drug supply and um, that's not something that we can unprescribe our way out of. Um, So in conclusion, uh, addiction is a treatable brain disease for uh, these are highly stigmatized chronic conditions which impacts access to care, retention and treatment, adherence and patient outcomes. Um, A solution to this stigma is clinically accurate, person-first language, which can help all of us play a role in fighting stigma.
1: Thank you guys so much. That was a wonderful discussion. I think we went through a lot, and I really appreciated the examples that you gave um, for how to use destigmatizing language and um, using um, kind of more uh, like alternatives that we can use instead of maybe terms that we're um, used to hearing in the past. Now, Julie, if you are having a conversation with somebody who is using stigmatizing language, do you have advice for how to go about um, either gently correcting them or um, not necessarily embarrassing
3: them, but still you know, being mindful of using the proper language? Absolutely, so I think, um you know, repeating the phrase they said with a clinically accurate version can be helpful. Using that language consistently yourself, you'll um, find people kind of start to mimic you, parrot back uh, what, what you've said. Um, you know, if it's something where, um, you know, say from a, a another healthcare worker where you feel like it's very egregiously um, you know, harming the patient or the treatment options that are being offered to them, I think, um, you know, gently saying, you know, this might be a term to consider instead um, can can be helpful. Okay, that's great. And then also, I
1: mean, in terms of patients, if you're interfacing directly with the patient or the family member and they are using stigmatizing language, Mm -hmm. um, is that the same thing
3: like you should um, sh- like, should I be correcting them in any way? Sure. That, that definitely gets um, more tricky. Um, if we remember back to Dr. Hall's original example of a label with a stereotype, um, it's not universal that patients have negative stereotypes with um, terms like alcoholic or addict. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, for many of our patients, that's a... Um, you know a term that has a positive connotation with them uh, particularly in the context of say Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous um, that you know may have a positive connotation so um, we generally don't recommend um, correcting patients if it's something that you know is is helpful to their identity um, family maybe would be a place to use Again, clinically accurate um, person-first language. Mm -hmm. Um, And then in documentation, because you don't know uh, who's reading this Mm -hmm. um, in the future and what sort of positive or negative connotation they'll have. So erring on the side of of person-first language would be where I'd go.
1: Okay, perfect. That makes a lot of sense. And Trent, what are some examples of patient mistreatment that people can experience due to stigma or stigmatizing language?
2: So... As we've reviewed with the literature, we know that it is possible for us to influence each other. And just kind of like my example before of what if you're meeting someone new and you hear something bad about them right before you meet, you know? Um, these kinds of labels influence how we perceive people, and it can narrow our differential diagnosis. You know, is, is the person waiting in the emergency room to be seen um, having DKA, or are they just intoxicated, right? Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. a critical error if, if we perceive them as, all oh, this is, um, you know, just a, a person who's intoxicated, then they need to sleep it off, you know? So mm-hmm. there uh, is a potential for harm if patients are, you know, um, labeled in such a way that they don't receive appropriate analgesia after a traumatic accident or mm-hmm. a surgery. So these are are real, meaningful clinical differences that each of us can make by changing the way that we think and talk about our patients.
1: Mm -hmm. Perfect. That's wonderful. Very helpful advice. Thank you guys both for coming and discussing this important topic. We're going to finish up today's program with a final key point from each of our
3: presenters. Julie? Thanks. So the neurobiology of addiction Uh, can help explain some of the behaviors that we see in patients with substance use disorders and help reframe um, our expectations and, you know, why we think things are happening. And Trent?
2: So whether we're talking about recovery from addiction or uh, among ourselves trying to change the way that we think and talk about addiction, what we're really talking about is a behavioral change and sometimes behavioral change can be uneven so i just would like to encourage you if you have maybe been trained to use some of the words that we're now trying to avoid to give yourself some patience and grace because just as we know that the road to recovery can have many twists and turns um, so can the road to starting to use clinically accurate non-stigmatizing language
1: Thank you for joining us today. For our audience, you can receive CME credit for watching by logging on to our website, ccme.osu.edu, and taking our post-test. Next week, I will have Dr. Tim Voorhees and Yazid Sawalha to talk about lymphoma. That's all for today. Thank you for tuning in, and farewell until next time.